What does this process look like for a person going through it? Just doing a program to do a program and say, well, 30 people attended, so it must have been successful. But what's 4% of 14,000 students? This is In the Know with ACCT, the voice of community college leaders. I'm Jacob Bray. For this episode of In the Know, we interviewed Kim Richmond, the director of the National Center for Campus Public Safety. The center was created by Congress and funded by the Department of Justice to be a clearinghouse of information and resources for campus safety nationwide. This episode is part of a series we curated for September, Campus Safety Month. This is part two of a two-part episode. Well, speaking of um, community relationships, you know, that's that besides of the work that's done within the board room, uh, that that is a primary job of community college trustees. They are liaisons within their communities. They represent community interests and then they get out there and, um, you know, bring the the value of the college back into the community. Uh, you identified several critical components of campus public safety. And the first one that comes to mind is community coordination. What What is the role of the college board and president? And are there any specific policies that come to mind that should be in place? Absolutely, especially around Title IX. Um, you know, just building the relationships and having uh, an understanding with your community resources and services that if you have a student who has been sexually assaulted on your campus and they are going through the criminal justice system process and also the administrative policy violation processes those are imagine a student in crisis who's just had this horrible thing happen to them trying to navigate both of those processes now trying now imagine if those two processes have never worked together haven't had the conversations ahead of time and are trying to figure it out with a victim in the middle of it a person in crisis in the middle of that a student in crisis in the middle of that um who you know who you know may or may not want to continue their education they are still that human being who have parents and who have um, you know, jobs and who have studies and all, all of those things, trying to navigate a criminal justice system and an administrative uh, procedure, we absolutely have to have the folks that are going to be doing that administrative work on campus and the folks who are involved in that criminal process off campus to be coordinated and to have a, me a memorandum of understanding about how that process is going to work. When are we, are we going to do joint investigations? Which one's going to go first? Are we going to share information? The last thing you want is the victim in the middle of trying well, to figure that out. That's a really good example about the coordination because, you know, I think for a long time, you know, it was kept in a little bubble of, you know, sort of the, sure. it was a campus thing and the criminal side of it in many institutions that, you know, not just college institutions, but many institutions in general have often operated that way. And, right, uh, and, so and that's you also really want to be mindful, um, you know, outside the criminal, because if, a, you know, maybe the, the person chooses not to go through the criminal justice mm -hmm. process, there's still a whole community-wide uh, resource um, that, that the person in crisis is going to go through if they choose to go to medical attention. Uh, so a lot of communities have, have developed a coordinated community response to sexual assault. You know, they call the maybe the SART team, the sexual assault response team or resource team um, that brings together all of the um, disciplines and people actual human beings who are involved in that process, advocacy, the medical folks, the, 
even just um, you know the the ambulance personnel, the first responders, the um, you know the dispatchers, and brings those folks together to talk about what does this process look like for a person going through it. And you talked earlier about making assumptions that people might already have this. We sh we can't approach this with the assumption that all of those folks have been for have been trained in trauma informed. Um, um, interactions with with our with our students or or that they understand all the dynamics of a you know that is happening for a sexual assault victim and I'll give an example of that uh, as we were developing our sexual assault response team um, you know we did a lot of training for our first responders our dispatchers and our police officers where if the victim comes to them um, you know we, we, we make sure we're um, victim-centered and doing that in a trauma and you know approaching it from a trauma-informed perspective and, and we worked with our hospital emergency um, staff and they did they actually brought in um, specially trained sexual assault nurse examiners it's a SANE program so there's tr nurses trained specifically on how to conduct a sexual assault nurse examination and how to testify in court and all of those things so we got a SANE program going on campus and we worked with our victim advocates to make sure that um, when a victim reported, we got them in touch with a victim advocate right away. Um, and we worked with our prosecutors to talk about what that process looks like and make sure that they were supported through the criminal justice system. Um, and so we thought we had a lot of the bases covered, and this is over you know, a few years. And then we had a victim come forward and went through the process and was reluctant to um, to report to the police didn't know if they wanted to, but they wanted to go to the to the hospital and you know get the medical exam. And what we didn't understand at the time or didn't think about at the time was that anybody who came through the emergency room, although we had the SANE program in place and they did the examination, the, anybody in the emergency room had to be medically cleared by an a ER physician um, before they could you know, be dismissed. And the ER physician came in and asked the victim, what were you doing in his room at 1 o'clock in the morning? So the victim, they, victim blaming language and you know just set that victim back you know went back to not wanting to report for a variety of reasons that that victims have um, and ultimately she did come back and um, make the report but it did delay it more so you have to look at each individual piece and you know po touch point where a victim is going to be receiving services in your community and make sure that you've had those conversations ahead of time and you're all and that's an ongoing thing too you talk about doctors leaving and you know, coming and going things like that and making sure that your your local uh, medical community has a process in place where they talk specifically about um, you know the trauma-informed uh, approach to victims so in a we have a checklist a hypothetical checklist for boards um, or just college leaders generally, uh, one of those things might be something like a memorandum of understanding to ensure. So they may not need to know all the details about how things are coordinated, but they need to know those relationships are formalized, right. that there's an agreement that they will coordinate. Um, so you mentioned language. Language matters. Matters a whole lot to me. I studied English. I studied creative writing. I'm the writer editor here. Um, but it matters in real life. Um, and I know that's, that's actually your next critical component is the impact of language. Um, can you elaborate on that beyond what, what you just discussed? Sure. It's, it's just, um, you know, being educated about the importance of language and understanding first impressions. Um, and that's educating everybody on your campus. Um, you know, the, the, 
the primary person that we know our victims of sexual assault report to is their friends, mm-hmm. uh, friends and family. That's the first people typically they go to. Now, it could be that it's a faculty member. It could be a staff member. Um, it could be, you know, the Title IX coordinator. But everybody needs to be educated about what is the appropriate, you know. The first thing you shouldn't ask is, victim blaming type statements um, and making sure that our language uh, is around, um, you know, taking care of the victim and making sure that they receive the resources. And um, so it's educating everyone on campus that a victim might report to. And I also would say from, especially from a senior leadership perspective, the first impressions are, are so critically important that yes, it's the person that the first person first discloses to, but it's also what is the image that a student has of how your campus addresses sexual assault and um, how what the process looks like so one of my challenges for trustees is really simple to do just put yourself in the position of a friend who just had somebody come to them and say i was the victim of sexual assault now get on your website and see where you find the resources on your campus to support that victim are they easy to find? What are the, you know, am I gonna know? Does the person search rape? Do they search assault? Do they search Title IX? You gotta look at it from, you know, who knows what they're gonna search, but how quickly does it come up on your website? What information and resources do you have available? Do you have confidential options for that person reporting? So just look at your website, because a lot of times, especially for our students, that's your first impression. It's not necessarily a person that you've trained. It's your physical, virtual um, impression. So just go to your website and see what's presented to a, a victim in crisis. You know, be careful not to use victim blaming language. And I think that uh, that is obviously <laughs> great advice. It seems, I, I would imagine some people who use language that people would call victim-blaming language probably don't realize that they're saying that. And in some cases, um, so just a a slight tangent is that we've been talking a lot at this association about Generation Z and how different Generation Z is in a whole lot of ways. And they're the incoming generation into colleges now, leaving high schools. And one of the ways uh, that that they're often described as being different is having a different relationship with language itself. They have different connotations, different associations, different sensitivities. Um, And then, so then when we go up to uh, older generations, millennials, Generation X, baby boomers and older, um, and a lot of board members will fall into those those older age brackets, they may not be as sensitive to language. What resources are available for people who may think, for anybody who may think, I, you know, I would never use a victim-blaming language, but then, for example, you watch a webinar and think, oh, that's victim-blaming language? That's just, I thought those are just common sense questions. What were you doing there at one o'clock in the morning? Sure. Whereas you know, from a law enforcement perspective, that's really not appropriate because that can be intimidating to a victim. Yeah, and law enforcement is really where we started with this training because from an investigation standpoint, those are necessary questions to ask from, you know, to gather the facts about you need to ask how much did you drink. Um, But we need to be mindful of how that comes across to the person 
um, who's sitting across from us and ask that in a way that isn't victim. Nobody is blaming the victim more than the victim themselves. Um, so we don't. We want to do be able to ask those questions. And you know, there's there's whole um, uh, training sessions on you know how to word things so that. But if you just think about it, you know, from a you know a big picture. If you just think about how would you want to be treated mm -hmm. um, and how would you want that information to be um, uh, delivered to you, then it becomes a little bit easier to think about. You don't need to go to a training session and say, these are the words to, that you right. say. And, you know, we also know it's all in how you treat the person. <laughs> you know, does the victim feel supported in the process and have you built this new relationship so that, when you have to ask those questions, they understand why you have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think the the the, the caution is with um, parents, friends, who have that knee-jerk reaction of, oh my gosh, what were you doing drinking that much and going home with a guy? You know, things like that that for some might be their initial reaction and just to, to know that they need to stop and pause and think about let's take care of the person in this crisis and make sure that they're you know they're healthy emotionally that we get them physically well and support them mm -hmm. in whatever decisions that they're making as as they explore their options in that process so you know i think the the specific language itself is a long session but i think you know what people need to know is just Take a deep breath and think about it from the position of the person in crisis and, um, you know, ask, how can I help? You know, what, what do you need? And instead of, you know, making those type of statements or, or uh, wording, because then that person feels supported. That, that's what they want. Let's see what your options are. Let me help you explore your options. And not so focused on the Title IX and the sexual um, assault um, issues, but more of you were getting at sort of gender or not gender, but um, generational um, differences in, in um, how people respond to various incidences. And you had mentioned earlier, like you gave an example, like the campus carry thing. And culturally, um, in different parts of the country, different locations, people may feel differently about a topic like that. And so I guess what I'm trying to get at is, you know, from the 30,000 foot level, from a policy level, you know, how trustees can work amongst one another, taking into consideration their cultural norms and generational um, preferences and, and such. If you have any ideas or recommendations on how boards might be able to work through, not specifically campus mm -hmm. carry, but just um, you know, there's compliance, obviously, but other recommendations on how boards can get to that policy level that is in compliance with federal regulations, but also in, I guess, um, sensitive to the, the needs of the community and the culture of the community. Sure, and so we, we discussed that in, actually in our Campus Carry White Paper, you know, just the process of going through the discussions and the, the number one thing that people kept talking about was communication. 
have open communication with the folks on your campus, have open communication with the folks in your community, not only about what do they want to see and how do they want to see it, but, you know, especially when it comes to state legislation and university policy or college campus policy, it, it's going to be what it is. Um, so, um, you know, making sure that that is communicated over and over again. These are our rules. This is what happens if there's noncompliance. And I remember when we went through on campus, we haven't done campus care yet, but we, you know, just the tobacco policies. It was all about communicating, getting the groups together, listening to all concerns, coming to a policy decision, and then communicating what that policy is and talking about how that's going to be enforced. Because people, you know, the, they would say, well, are the cops going to come arrest me if I smoke? You know, talking about what's the enforcement of that going to look like? What's the discipline? You know, how, how is really, that going to be managed? That's a really good example because a friend of mine is a restaurant and bar owner. And as a restaurant and bar owner, when the non-smoking um, policy or legislation became, I, I'm thinking it's everywhere now, but he said his staff were like, thank God, you know, because of secondhand smoke and all that. And so that's an interesting example of how a policy that is now legislated has impacted both behavior as well as the pushback. Because, you know, people that are smokers go to a bar and, you know, you can't tell me I can't smoke and that sort of thing. So that that's a good example, I think. Of. Right. So just, you know, the, the primary thing was, um, you know, having the conversations and communicating, um, you know, the policies and the enforcement mm -hmm. and, the you know, just people, people need to know why, why, mm -hmm. why and how do I comply? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, majority of people comply with regulations mm -hmm. and want to. What other critical components would you want to emphasize to leaders? Yeah, so I think, you know, from a, you know, unfortunately, crises are happening across the country, you know, daily, weekly um, on campuses. And whether it's, you know, a small fire on a campus or a major um, weather situation or an active shooter type situation, take those opportunities when you see those headlines and you think, oh, how horrible that is. Take, uh, you know, just a few minutes to think about if that happened on our campus, what plans do we have in place, not only to respond to that, but to recover from that and think about it from a business continuity um, perspective and a resiliency perspective. And, you know, think, you know, tabletop exercises are great things to do and emergency management folks love to do those, but that definitely engages the senior leadership because you need all those players who are gonna be making decisions um, you know, critical decisions about those, all those things we mentioned before, uh, but doing the what ifs and just thinking about, you know, what happens if it does happen here? Not, not being the person that says it can't happen here, but what if it did? And it sounds like it would be good just to make that an annual or every six month or quarterly, whatever, you know, process on the calendar that we're going to review our policy we're going to have a discussion about it we're going to bring in the folks like you said the the first responders the medical folks whoever the, these relationships with and partnerships with that need to be um reminded of because as you said people change over yeah, you know there's it's an new, ongoing process yeah. for sure yeah 
So before we get to the takeaways, which is your to-do list, um, I was wondering, as I mentioned before, you presented at our Governance Leadership Institute, which was dedicated to interests of uh, campus safety and security. And I was wondering just if any uh, questions came up or any discussions came up while you were there that surprised you or that uh, perhaps, you know, people may be thinking about or may not be thinking about that they need to know about. Um, I think, um, not that surprised me, I think one of the areas that folks tend to get overwhelmed is just where do we start? Mm -hmm. If we don't currently have these things in place, where do we start? And it can, it, it can completely seem overwhelming. Um, but again, it's, and, and this specific question was around uh, prevention and, you know, how do we know what's working and what are we doing on our campus to um, minimize the impacts of alcohol and drugs or to prevent sexual assault, um, things like that. And, you know, my experience has taught me time and time again, and, the, you know, the expert, you know, whatever you read is going to say, make sure that what you are doing is evidence-based, you know, just doing a program to do a program and say, well, 30 people attended, so it must have been successful. You, you really need to understand and, and do the surveys on your campus that tell you if you're moving that needle. Is your high-risk drinking going up? Is it going down? Is marijuana more of an issue on your campus than alcohol? How do you know those things? So from a senior leadership perspective, ask the questions of what surveys are we doing on our campus that might provide that information so we know if the, the money that we're seeking, uh, putting into some of these prevention uh, topics is having any impact. And if you're not currently asking the questions, look at what surveys are out there that you can. But most campuses are doing surveys that you could either add questions to or you could glean that information from. Um, in Missouri, we had what was called Missouri College Health and Behavior Survey um, because we, we got a, a statewide grant, so we participated in this survey. Invaluable information as far as dedicating our resources to the right um, issues on our campus and then finding out are the tactics that we're using, are the strategies that we're um, employing effective? Is it changing that needle with high-risk drinking and sexual assault? Um, and, and that's from students reporting. We're not looking at crime statistics to tell us if we're making a difference because crime statistics can mean different things. And that's an, what's one of the things I want senior leadership to understand as, as well. If you have zero sexual assaults reported on your campus, it's probably because you don't have a good process for reporting in place. It's not because they're, they're not happening. I guarantee they're happening unless you're just a, a exception to the uh, you know national statistics there are victims uh, on your campus um, so it's from a sexual assault perspective if I would rather send my child to a campus who has 10 reported sexual assaults than the one that has zero because the one who encourages um, the reporting are going to get the reports and they have a, a victim-centered um, response in place and they've had the conversations with the community and the victim so feels supported so that you know, students talk to each other. If they say, oh, I reported sexual assault, you don't want to go through that, don't report. You're not going to see the reports. If they feel supported and felt like, even if there's not justice, you know, that means different things to different people. It may not be a conviction in a criminal court. That might not even be what the victim 
is pursuing. But if they felt supported through the process and felt like, you know, there was a positive outcome, then you're going to have more reports. Um, so, but from a prevention stack tactics, you know, what are your surveys telling you? What aren't they telling you? Um, what are your primary uh, targets that you need to target your resources towards? Um, and, and I use the example of um, we found out on our campus, they, they were asked, or I think it was our housing folks, they were asking the question, how safe do you feel on campus? One to seven. Seven feeling really, really safe, totally safe. And, you know, we were at four and a half or so, five. It's like, then I asked, so where do we want to be? Do you want people to be a seven and just walk around oblivious to any threats? Um, and what does four and a half mean? Does that mean they feel safe in their room, but not, does it mean they're living with a violent person and they don't feel safe? So we looked at how can we ask the question better to better understand how our students feel. And, you know, one of the ways we do that is just do focus groups with students. And uh, from an environmental uh, perspective or a physical security perspective, we would do light sur lighting surveys on our campus. And it used to be, you know, we'd send out our, our law enforcement folks and go say, tell us where we need lights or, you know, is there lights out in certain areas? Then we got smart and we said, well, let's take the electricians with us who can add poles where we need them or get the bulbs replaced that need replacing. Let's take the person who trims the bushes and the trees that darkens our, our campuses sometimes. And, oh, let's bring a student along because students have a whole different perspective. When I took students with me then it's like oh yeah nobody walks there because it's creepy mm -hmm. well let's take that creepy let's do something about that creepy spot mm -hmm. um so it's it's engaging students in the those things too and asking students the questions and you can do that around alcohol and drugs um you know sexual assault um students are pretty open about they they know what's happening in the in the communities and if we're not asking the questions we're not gonna um you know know how to respond unless they you know, have a big movement or a protest and demonstration because the campus isn't being responsive or things like that. So you don't, you want to have those conversations ahead of time so that they know that you're, you're working on those issues. And not to stop your, your oh, sure. checkpoints there, but it, that in and of itself, you talked earlier about emerging trends and those surveys probably change from time to time. When I was in college in the 80s, a campus shooter was never even something that anyone would have ever thought about. I have a daughter in college now who said, yeah, it's probably just a matter of time. But um, that being, <laughs> I know I shouldn't have said that, but, <laughs> but um, the point being that sexual assault was definitely an issue when I was in college, but nobody talked about it. You know, culturally in the 80s, that was like, well, you shouldn't have been drinking. <laughs> you know, that kind of response. So I do think that with emerging trends and, you know, just access to lots of information is something that that's really important to, to um, keep keeping gathering the data from the students and those on campus. Right. And I know from doing the prevention work, you know, it's, it's a little bit harder sell for senior leaders uh, because how do we show what we what didn't happen? Um, so when you look at it from a resource perspective, it's you know, the, well, we don't have that much happening on campus. Well, why is that? And, you know, is that because we're doing, we, we have good efforts or because it's not being reported? Culture, but, yeah. you know, the, the way that, you know, if, if it's not just because we want our students to be safe and we want them to have, a, you know, a good experience and not, um, you know, when we started really looking at the data from students around, uh, I'll use alcohol abuse as an example, and we started asking the questions, 
How often have you missed class due to alcohol? That speaks to your faculty. How often did you do, perform poorly on a test or on a paper because of alcohol? That speaks to your faculty. Um, it also, when we started looking at how many of our students who started in the fall semester and didn't come back in the spring semester, how much of that was due to alcohol? And the numbers were what shouldn't been, have been surprising, but when we started doing some interventions with those folks in that fall semester, then we retained those students for the spring semester and then they were able to successfully complete. So when you start looking at prevention as a student retention tactic, it start ma starts making sense because, and, and you, can't, you can't necessarily demonstrate that with, you know, a lot of people want to see the numbers. Mm -hmm. You start collecting the data, you can start putting numbers to those. Um, and, you know, even if you don't have local data, you know, from sexual assault as an example, if you don't have local data about what's happening uh, on your campus or in your community, maybe it's statewide data, maybe it's national data, you, you just use the national data. And just um, one of the things that was effective for me when I had the conversations with senior leadership is just thinking about, okay, maybe it's only 4% of our students, but what's 4% of 14,000 students? That fills one of our classrooms. That fills one of our um, uh, lecture halls. Mm -hmm. Now, picture that many people in that lecture hall that are impacted by it, whether it's sexual assault or, you know, alcohol abuse or whatever. Then it starts becoming real. And how do we provide the services and uh, reach that population so that we can help them continue to be, um, you know, successful students and you know get their get through their education, which mm -hmm. is our primary role. This has been part two of a two-part interview with Kim Richmond. Make sure to subscribe so you're notified when we post new episodes, and don't hesitate to get in touch if you have an idea for a new episode. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.